We're facing some difficult passages with some difficult topics here in the Gospel of Luke. So take, grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And we're going to read uh, verses 29 through 36 of this morning. It's on page 870 in your pew Bible. There are two pericopes, two sections that on the surface... They may not look like they go together, but in reality they do as we dig into the scriptures together this morning. So Luke chapter 11, we'll read verses 29 through 36. Hear God's word. It reads, when the crowds were increasing, he, talking about Jesus, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold... Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the second pericope. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar under a basket, but on a stand. So that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of life, of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, It will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come now, and that it would illumine our hearts, illumine our minds, that we might understand and see the truth of your word, apply it to our lives. But we also pray that your spirit would come and do the work of regeneration in those among us this morning that spiritually are blind or find themselves spiritually dead in relationship to you. Pray that your spirit would come and open eyes, regenerate hearts, give spiritual life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do dads really want on Father's Day? Now that some of the Father's Day gifts have been distributed, we can see how well you did. Children, what do dads really want on Father's Day? Well, I looked at a survey this week, and this is the list of the most wanted present to the uh, least wanted present. So it goes from the number one gift 
to the number six gift, and I found these answers surprising. The most wanted gift by fathers on Father's Day is just simply a card. Number two is just time with family. So for those of you that just decided to come to church with your dad today, congratulations. The second most wanted gift by most fathers on Father's Day is just simply time with their family. Whether it be in worship, whether it be around a meal, or doing a hobby that they love together. Whether it be fishing, golfing, you name it. The third most wanted gift by fathers is clothing. Perhaps a new tie or a new pair of shorts or something. The fourth is a homemade gift. Could be something baked or a card made that's homemade. The fifth wanted gift is tools. And the sixth wanted gift is electronics. Now, I'm curious about how realistic this survey is. Because most of the guys I talk to, they would much rather have a tool or an electronic than a card. But nonetheless, this is what the survey says that dads want. What's, what's involved in a Father's Day gift? There's two parts to it. You have the gift given, and then you have the response from the dad. You have the response from the father. If you think about it, that's true in every aspect of our life and every relationship that we have. There's always a gift given or a conversation that's initiated, and then you're always a little bit nervous about the response. On Father's Day, it's a good time to remember how nervous some of you fathers were when you first asked your wife out on that date. Remember? There was the initiation, there was the conversation, but you were waiting for what? The response. And also, you remember when you got down on that bended knee and your, your hands were shaking as you pulled that ring from your pocket. There was a gift to be given, but there was a second part that was very important, correct? It was the response of I do or I don't think so. <laughs> the same is true in relationships with our friends. You may find yourself wanting to invite some friends over, and so that's a big step of faith for some of us to invite folks over to our house. And, and you're wondering, how are they going to respond to that invitation? Or for some of you, you've invited someone to come to church with you on a Sunday morning, and so there's two parts to that relationship as well, isn't there? There's the invitation, a gift of time. You think the gift to be able to worship with God's people, and you're curious about what the response is going to be. Why do I bring up these examples this morning? Why is that so important to us today? Because in every relationship that we have, there's a gift given, and then there has to be receptivity to that gift that's given. That's true in our relationship with, between husbands and wives, parents and children, friends, family members, but it's even more so in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ, we have the greatest gift ever given. But it's not going to be appreciated unless there's receptivity to Christ. That's really the central issue in this text this morning. 
you find Jesus is angry, he's upset, he seems annoyed. Why? Because of the lack of receptivity to who he is and what he's doing within their midst. So this morning, the title of today's message is Receptacles for Jesus. And so the question is, how receptive are we to Jesus this morning? How receptive are we to the gift of salvation that Christ offers us? How receptive are we to the evidence that Christ has given us that he is who he says he is? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Redeemer. So this morning as we examine this passage together, I want us to take a look at both parts of this passage. The gift and the response. Another way to say it is to take a look at the gift of God's revelation. God's revelation to us. Now to understand why Jesus is annoyed in verse 29... You really have to go back to chapter, uh, stay in chapter 11, but go back to verse 16 and 15. The whole catalyst for this conversation, this teaching, is actually, pardon me, is verse 14, is that Jesus had just cast out a demon out of a person. And that demon had left that individual mute for most of their life. And what happens as a result of Jesus exercising this demon from this individual in verse 14 is that there's a twofold response that the folks give to Jesus. The first is that they accuse Jesus of casting out this demon because Jesus is working by the power of Satan. And then the second response is that they demand a sign from Jesus from heaven. Look at verse 14. It says, Now as Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. The appropriate response. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. What's the point? Jesus has just performed a miracle that should leave everyone speechless. Their jaws should be dropped open, marveling at what Jesus has done. What's the problem? There's a receptivity problem to what Jesus has done. Was it not a gift for them to be able to see Jesus exercise that demon? Absolutely. As equally so as it was for the person that had the demon expelled for them. What was the problem? They weren't receptive to the gift of God's revelation among them. So look at what Jesus says in verse 29 of our passage. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. Why? It seeks for a sign. In other words, Jesus is responding to what was just said in verse 16. What more proof did they need that Jesus was the Son of God than to expel a demon from their midst? But Jesus says, I've given you the gift of my revelation in my word and in my deed is what he's going to prove to them in verses 29 through 32. That God has given us evidence of who Jesus is in both Jesus' words and in his works. In his word 
and in his deeds. And what is the evidence that Jesus gives us in verses 29 through 32? Well, look at what he first says about his works. Uh, In 29, he points to the miracle that he just performed by exercising a demon. But then in verse 30, he points to the greatest work that he will do in his death, burial, and resurrection. It says in verse 30, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about his resurrection. In other words, Jesus gives an example that he says, if you're looking for evidence of who I am, you're going to see it very clearly in my death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus uses Jonah as a type. What's a type? Typology is when in the Old Testament a person, a place, an institution, or an event is used as a way to foreshadow the person and work of Christ. And so what happens in verse 30 is that Jesus points to the Old Testament prophet Jonah as a type. That as a person, as the event in his life, as he was swallowed by a fish for three days and then vomited up onto the ocean, upon the seashore, is a picture of what's going to happen to Christ as he accomplishes the work of salvation on our behalf. And so Jesus points to Jonah as a type, prefiguring Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. This is what J.C. Ryle says. A type of our Lord being in the grave and rising again on the third day, Jesus uses Jonah to testify to the truth of the resurrection and the life to come. And to add a cherry on top in verse 32 when he says that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. The word rise there in verse 32 is the same Greek word that Luke will use in Luke chapter 24 and in Acts chapter 2. Pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as Jesus will raise from the dead. What's the point? Look at the evidence. Look at the evidence for who Jesus is. Look at the gift that God's given us in his revelation to us in Jesus' words and his works. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the exclamation point. Proving Jesus' identity. But Jesus says before that, if you look at verses 31 and 32, his preaching alone should have been enough of a gift, enough evidence to convince them of who he was. And so Jesus gives two Gentile examples in verse 31 and 32 of individuals that heard far less superior preaching and responded positively to it. In verse 31, Jesus talks about this queen of the south, which we know from 1 Kings chapter 10 is actually the queen of Sheba, that comes over because uh, she's heard about how great great of wisdom Solomon has. And it says that in 1 Kings chapter 10 that the queen of Sheba comes over to Solomon and she hears his words of wisdom and she's amazed by it. And then it says in verse 32 that 
that the men of Nineveh will also rise up and condemn this generation because they, they heard a less superior preaching and a less superior preacher in Jonah. And what do we know about Jonah? Jonah didn't even care to see the Ninevites repent. Jonah didn't even care to see the Ninevites repent and come to a saving knowledge of God. But what's the point? Jesus is saying, these generations of the Queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn you. Because they responded to less superior preaching than you've heard in Christ. What's the point for me and you? What's your response to the evidence? We have in the Gospels. We have in church history. We have testimonies among us of people's lives that have been changed by Jesus Christ. How receptive are you to the evidence? This week I had a friend of mine call me on the phone. He's a guy named Guy. I witnessed, to Christ, I witnessed about Christ to Guy for about six years, if not eight years, before Guy came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. A guy who called me on the phone because he was complaining about the fact that he was witnessing now to some of his friends, and he was telling me about how resistant and hostile they are to the Christian faith. He said, you know, Tanner, it seems like the more... The more answers I give them, the more questions they have. And no matter how much evidence I give them, they're never pleased and they're never satisfied. And he heard the sarcasm in my voice when I said to him, huh, I wouldn't know what that's like. I'll never forget sitting in Cheddar's. It's a, a restaurant there in Asheville, North Carolina with my buddy Guy. And he had asked me another question about the Christian faith. I remember answering him. I remember giving to him what I thought was an was just a soundproof argument and answer to his question. I remember looking at Guy at that point and saying, are you ready to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior now? And he said, no. I said, why not? And he said, you didn't convince me. But I'll never forget him saying this. He said, but I'm, I'm impressed with the fact that you're convinced you gave me enough evidence to convince me. What's the point? There are many people outside the church that are exactly like the generation that Jesus preached to that day. They're convinced all they need is more evidence. But the reality is, they haven't taken a look at the evidence. That's been given. Do you know what's sadder than that fact? It's the fact that some of you are sitting here in the sanctuary right now. And you may have been raised as a covenant child of this congregation. And you too haven't taken advantage 
of the evidence that's been given to you about the person and work of Jesus Christ. As you examine the scriptures, what you see is that from start to finish, there's a scarlet thread of redemption that weaves and ties the Bible together. And unless we respond appropriately to that message of salvation, not only will we have previous generations stand up and speak against us on Judgment Day, but more importantly, we will have our Creator sound the gavel of justice against us on that day. So my question to you, church, is this. What's your response to the gift that God gives to you today in Jesus? What's your response? Are you receptive? Or are you resistant? That's precisely what Jesus gets at in verses 33 through 36 is our response to the gift. Jesus uses this, this simile and this, this terminology of a candle and a light, a lamp and a light on a number of different occasions in Luke's gospel. But I want you to see what the point of verses 33 through 36 are in this passage. The point that Jesus is making is what's your response to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, when Jesus says in verse 33 that no one after lighting the lamp puts it in a cellar under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. The point that Jesus is making is this, is that when the gospel is presented and the gospel is proclaimed to people's souls and to people's ears... It's as if God has offered them up a lamp and a light in a dark world. And the point that Jesus gets at in verse 34 is that your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your whole body is full of darkness. In other words, your eye is the organ through which you receive the light that is in the room. For those of you that have cataracts or for those of you that are battling other eye conditions, you may have walked into this room, this sanctuary this morning, frustrated that it's so dark. But what I can attest to, let me first look around, make sure no lamps are out before I embarrass myself. Okay, none. All of the lights are shining like they normally do every Sunday. But perhaps what's happened is your receptivity to the light has changed. That's the point that Jesus is making in this passage. Is that the problem is not the lack of sufficiency in the gospel. The problem is not the lack of sufficiency in the, in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But the problem is upon our hardened hearts. Our calloused hearts. And our lack of responsiveness and our lack of receptivity to the gospel that's proclaimed. 
And that's why Jesus says in verse 35, Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. In other words, be careful, lest you've gotten into the habit that as the evidence of the gospel is presented to you, you snub it, you push it away, and you kick against it. Because when you do that repeatedly, You harden your heart to Christ and you callous your heart to the gospel. And friends, one of the saddest comments I ever heard from one of an officer in a church that was a deacon was this. As he left his wife and as he walked away from the faith was this. Pastor Tanner I've become convinced that following Jesus is for the older people in the world just before they die. What happened in that man's life? He was resistant and hardening his heart. To Jesus, who's the light of the world. So the point Jesus makes in verse 36 is that then your whole body is full of life. Have no part, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays give you light. In other words, there's two works that the Holy Spirit does in our heart. When we're spiritually dead, he regenerates our hearts He brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He opens our eyes so that spiritually we can see the severity of our sin and we can see the need of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But as we're believers, the Holy Spirit does the work of illumination so that each week when we come to God's Word in the sanctuary or each morning or night when we come to God's Word, He does the work of illumination that He opens our eyes to see the truth of what's there and how it's applicable to our lives. In both instances, God is sovereign and we're responsible to respond appropriately to God's word. R. Kent Hughes tells the true story about Christians that were imprisoned in a dungeon during the French Revolution. True story. These Christians were imprisoned in a dungeon, and one of them was able to smuggle a Bible into the dungeon with them. But here was the unfortunate situation. The dungeon was so dark for most of the day that they could not read the Bible even if they opened it before them. But the prisoners, the Christian prisoners, began to notice that there was one particular point in the day where the way that the sun came over the dungeon, a little bit of light would shine in on the side of the ceiling. And so the Christian prisoners worked together each day and they began hoisting one of them up on the shoulders of the other one so that that prisoner that day might be able to read a little bit of the Bible in the light before the light disappeared 
And when the light disappeared, that, pri- that Christian prisoner was lowered to the floor. And then the rest of his brothers in Christ asked him, Tell us what you read while you were in the light. Friends, the light of the gospel is shining this morning. How will you respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What we pray is that there would be none among us that would leave here today blinded by the God of this world. But we pray that your Holy Spirit would move that our eyes might be open to the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus. We pray that your light would shine into the darkness of our hearts and our lives and give us light of the knowledge of the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that we might leave here today Grateful for the evidence, the proof that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of sinners. He's the resurrected King, and He's coming again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond together today with hymn number 347 in our